Well, good morning again. We are continuing in our series for the life of the world. And our sermon this morning is coming from Psalm 65. And before, before we read our passage for our sermon this morning, uh, I want you to look out for uh, the four points of our sermon We're talking about wonder this morning, how wonder transforms us, and wonder and beauty are kind of united together. But as we read through the passage, I want you to see how we're drawn to God's beauty, and living in awe of God's beauty draws us into worship, and in worship we recognize God's lavish love toward us, and recognizing Jesus' gratuitous act of sacrifice transforms us. So there's this connection between wonder and beauty and uh, God's uh, gratuitous and sacrificial act for us. And we'll unpack that here in a minute. Let's read Psalm 65. Hear the word of the Lord. To the God of our salvation, praise is due you, O God, in Zion, and you shall, uh, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and and of the farthest seas The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless, excuse me, you make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Father, now we thank you for this, your word. Let our hearts now and our minds be opened to the beauty and majesty and wonder of your glorious deeds and mysterious character. Let it transform our hearts that we may leave this place differently and be transformed into the likeness and image of your son, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I've talked in the past about my friend Dwight. Um, Some of you may may remember me talking about my good friend Dwight. Uh, Dwight became a Christian in jail. Dwight Dwight was in jail for a year, and I didn't know him before he was locked up, but while he was in jail, he became a Christian. And when he got out, he started coming to our church. I think he was like in a halfway house when he got released from prison right behind the church, and he started coming. And we hit it off immediately. We were about the same age. We had a lot of the same interests. 
we liked some of the same music, but there was one really big difference between uh, Dwight and I. He had this sense of wonder about the world. Uh, and this, laid, this made life sweet for Dwight. We'd go hiking, and he would kneel beside a leaf. And um, he, was, he was my age, but he was, was kind of like in the, like the wrong decade. He was a hippie. And, and his, his faith um, was just on fire. And he saw everything enchanted. The world was enchanted. It was like the world was magical to Dwight. We would go hiking. He would kneel beside a leaf and, and say, look at the, the way the sun shines on this leaf, man. And um, I mean, he would do that everywhere. He would, he would marvel at music and melodies and the way the sun was shining on the grass and things that I just kind of not only took for granted, but um, things that just didn't move me the way it moved Dwight. He was an authentic case of, <clears throat> of real conversion, and he had about him this sense of awe. He was just, he was awe-inspired by the world, and it was like, after becoming a Christian, he saw the world in technicolor. It was like everything was black and white before he became a Christian. When he became a Christian, like, everything was in color. I mean, like, rich, rich color. And I would stop by his little apartment, and you don't know what to expect when you'd stop by unannounced, and I would hear inside of the door, he would be playing the guitar and singing praise songs. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, there was like weed coming out of the window or something. I mean, it was like, you know, he was really converted. This guy was like his whole heart was poured into his worship because he was in such a sense of awe about the world. And it was like God let him become a kid again. And um, everything, again, like I said, was, was magical. It was like he was growing up, seeing everything for the first time. Isn't this one of the biggest differences between adults and children? Children have this sense of wonder about the world. It's probably why you guys have a lot more fun than your parents. Because, you know, everything is kind of new. And there's a sense of wonder about the world. Children are not cynical. They're not jaded. Now, as close as Dwight and I became, and we're still very close, he irritated me. He just irritated me. I would just get, I would get so irritated by Dwight because of the way he was. And looking back in retrospect, I realized that it had to do with the fact that his ability to see the beauty and everything revealed to me how cynical and jaded I had become. For me, the world seemed calloused and cold and people couldn't be trusted. I'd been burned, you know, one too many times by folks. And I scoffed at the sentimental because the world, well, it sort of seemed cold. And I had lost that sense of beauty, that sense of childlike wonder that Dwight so freely experienced. I wonder how many of us here this morning um, have lost that sense of wonder about the world. Maybe you're cynical or jaded. Life for you is just a daily grind. There's not much to look forward to. Every day is like the day before nothing to get excited over, and you can't maybe remember the last time you were moved by a sunset. And maybe that sounds corny to you. And if it does, you're probably cynical and jaded. But you can't remember maybe the last time you teared up at a sunset or a sunrise or drank a cup of coffee in your backyard in the morning listening to the birds chirp and just out loud said, God, I thank you I'm alive. 
It's easy for that to happen in the world we live in, in our busy lives, which are bogged down by so many cares. Well, I want us to see this morning that wonder and beauty transform us, and it is a vital part of what it means to have faith and believe in God and walk by faith. It's striking when you read the Bible. Some people have said if if you get the book of Genesis right, you can get the whole entire Bible right. If you get Genesis wrong, nothing else makes sense. And it's striking that the very first pages, in the very first pages of Genesis, that when God is creating, in the days of creation, after each creative act, what does God say? It is good. And, and when you really look at the passage, especially when you look at, in Hebrew, what, what's really happening is God is sort of stepping back from each creative act and saying, wow, this is good. Oh, this is real good. Uh, the Hebrew word for good means uh, sweet or savory. It was like God was saying, like, this is sweet. Right? He is stepping back, appreciating with a profound sense of awe and wonder his own creation. And when you think about it, it gives new meaning to the phrase, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's this idea that experiencing wonder is not something that just happens with the mind. As if, as long as you know enough about the world or you know enough about God because you've learned about God, that that is enough to simply appreciate God's majesty and glory, when in reality, there is something about experiencing. If you've ever had good wine, right? You don't just look at the bottle. You can. You can look at the bottle and go, oh, 1965. But it doesn't mean anything unless you pour that glass, right? And do whatever you wine people do. You go like that and you, you know, you look in the light. But, you know, you have to experience it. And you smell it and it's savory and you, and you taste it. And it's this idea that our lives are informed by so much more than simply head knowledge, and it's this idea that to really truly come to grips and grasp what it means to know God is to appreciate him in a sense of splendor and wonder and beauty. Well, Psalm 65 is this invitation we just read through to see what God sees. As the psalmist sees the beauty of the world around him, he's seeing the very face of God. If you you think about what we just read, he's looking at the world around him to meditate on the invisible attributes of an invisible God, right? Maybe I could say the visible attributes of an invisible God, right? So he's looking at his world around him, and he's glorifying God because he is experiencing what it means to be human in a profound way. I mean, this is what being human is meant to yield for us. It is meant to yield this sense of wonder. In fact, I would say that most of us who do suffer from being cynical and jaded, uh, we probably need to hit the reset button in some really significant way. So the first thing I want us to see, number one, is we are drawn to God's beauty. In verses 2 and in verses 5 of the chapter of Psalm we read, it says, to you shall all flesh come, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth, and the farthest seas. The psalmist has in his mind the wonder and glory and majesty of God would draw people. For the psalmist, God's beauty is his mysterious character and his magnificent actions. 
which is to say that if people are rightly grasping the God of Scripture, they can't help but to be drawn to him. I often feel that the God that people reject today is really not the God of the Bible, that they have a concept of God that they think is the God of Scripture, but in reality, it's this other God, because the God of Scripture is beautiful. The God of Scripture is majestic. The God of Scripture inspires awesome wonder. And according to the psalmist, that God draws people. Not some figment of our imagination, some meanie God who wants to destroy everybody if you violate one small little, right? Like, God just out to get you. You know, the magnifying glass God, your ants, and here's the sunbeam, and God is, you know, he's burning down on you. Like, like the scriptures present God as this God of awesome wonder, and the creation reflects that. Now, we might ask, and this is the question really looming over the text this morning, which is, why beauty, right? There's a lot of attributes of God, holiness and righteousness and love. There's all these other things. But we might ask, why beauty? Why not some of those other attributes? Well, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a... um, Catholic priest in the 1960s and a writer, kind of a mystic, he wrote this about beauty in a book called The Glory of the Lord. Listen to this. Beauty is the last thing which the thinking intellect dares to approach. And yet, apart from it, the ancient world could not understand itself. Sadly, beauty is no longer loved or fostered by religion. We no longer dare to believe in beauty and we make of it a mere appearance in order to more easily dispose of it. And we can be sure that whoever sneers at her name as if she were the ornament of a bourgeois past, whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. That is a jarring statement for modern ears, especially since our culture has swung the pendulum so far in the opposite direction. Our culture celebrates the obscene. Our culture uh, um, displays the vulgar and the profane and the grotesque, and we're almost infatuated with those things now. It was almost like our infatuation with beauty needed some kind of correction because life is not always beautiful, but the sinful heart swung the pendulum so far in the opposite direction that now only vulgarity and profanity is all we're obsessed with and infatuated with. We've lost the sense of beauty and wonder. And this really affects every area of life. You, you can think of the phrase, even in architecture, form follows function. Who's heard that before? Yeah, and it's this idea uh, that modern culture rejects this idea that um, the usefulness of beauty. In other words, the way something looks, if it doesn't serve any function, if it doesn't serve any usefulness, well, why should we have it? We should build buildings based on what they do, not how they make us feel. Now, Roger Scruton, a philosopher, comments, he says, the late 20th century gave rise to a raw, functional way of building, shorn of all ornament, ostentatiously declaring that structures and buildings are nothing but their function. I spend at least three days a week in libraries in St. Louis, and I bounce all around because I kind of get bored at one one place or another. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but 
the libraries in the county have undergone renovations. Have you, have you noticed this? And um, they're boring. The new design of the libraries is so uninspiring. They're the most uninspiring places in the world. They're really just offices. They've got windows and plastic desks. There is not a single place or nook in these new libraries, as nice as they are, and they're clean. There's nothing inspiring whatsoever. I cannot, I can barely write a sermon there. There's nothing inspiring, and so I find myself driving down to the massive, beautiful, glorious library. On, I think it's on Grand. I mean, it is glorious. And what makes it so glorious is there's all this useless uh, ornament in there. Super high vaulted ceilings, mahogany desks that are oversized, beautiful chairs, you know, molding that probably would cost a jillion dollars today, and you can't use any of it, but it's meant to make you feel something. And when I'm there, I feel, and I love it. And so beauty may not have a utilitarian function, but it has a use because it makes us feel something. I feel like saying, can I get an amen on that? Right? If something is beautiful, it makes us feel something profound. And this may be the biggest disconnect for people in their faith. Because we try and qualify God's worthiness and worshipfulness based on not what he is and in himself, but what we can kind of get from God. Well, what's the use of God, people ask. What function does he serve? He just hasn't done anything for me, right? We're so caught up in the usefulness and the utility of something. I mean, we've judged God by his utility instead of by his beauty. In other words, if we can't get something from God, if he's not doing this or that for us, we don't see much point for him. And Tim Keller said this, religious people see God as useful, but Christians see God as beautiful. Religious people see God as useful, but Christians see God as beautiful. Maybe the religious heart wants the appearance of worshiping God to make them look holy or to make them look righteous or respectable. But Christians, true Christians, see God as just beautiful. When you go to a national park and you stare at some granite monolith, you don't say, now what can I do with that 3,000-foot rock face? Hmm? You don't have to do anything to it. It's beauty alone is the usefulness of it. It just washes over you, right? When you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't think, you know, what a waste of space. It's a big pit in the ground. I mean, if you say that, talk to me afterwards and I'll smack some sense into you. You look at the Grand Canyon and you say, wow, how glorious, how majestic. You should be rightly in awesome wonder of a thing like that. Because it's beautiful. And all of these things for the psalmist point to God. Secondly, I want us to see, living in awe of God's beauty draws us into worship. That's what these things should do, right? The mind that is informed by the power of God's spirit should see these magnificent natural wonders and be drawn to God, but be drawn to God in worship. 
The two are connected. If God isn't beautiful, it's hard to worship him. We have a very sterile conception of God, that he is this judge, he's like a a clerk at the courthouse or something, or a guy in a robe or something, right? And the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible goes, no, 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 God is like the Grand Canyon. God is like Half Dome or El Capitan at Yosemite. That's what God is like. He's huge, he's larger than life, he's magnificent, he's imposing, he is glorious, and you should stand in awesome wonder at his feet. That's the God of Scripture. That's the God of Scripture. In verses 6 through 8, it says, The one who established the mountains stills the roaring seas and makes the going out of the morning and the evening shout for joy. What a beautiful description about God. The psalmist looks around at nature's monuments, the granite monoliths, the roaring seas, the foamy waves, and he's drawn into worship. Those visible things make him think about the invisible attributes of God. Those visible things point to God in a profound way, and rightly so, because beauty should draw us into worship. And here's one reason why. It shifts focus from ourselves. It shifts focus away from ourselves and our circumstances. This is why it's often hard to worship God, and this is why we're often jaded and cynical, because we are so entrenched in our own lives, in our own circumstances, in our own situation. And what beauty does is it draws you away from your own circumstances. It draws you away from yourself. Can you imagine going to the Grand Canyon and seeing somebody the whole time with a compact mirror, putting on lipstick, or a guy combing his hair for an hour? I mean, it would be ridiculous, right? Like, you're standing in front of one of the world's wonders, you bozo. Put the mirror away. And that's what beauty and wonder is supposed to do. It is supposed to draw us away from ourselves and our circumstances. And because God knows life is tough, right? And God says, take a break every now and again and behold the glorious wonder. In fact, this word behold is throughout Scripture hundreds of times. It is literally hundreds of times throughout Scripture. We're constantly being told to behold, behold, to behold. Perhaps the most important thing we can do as a Christian community is to behold, behold our God, behold his creation. When Job despairs of life itself and is accusing God of being unrighteous, you know what his friends say to him? You know, they said a lot of stupid things, but some of the good things they said in Job 37, 14, was Job was told simply to behold God's works. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Job, you're suffering right now. You can't see past your circumstance and your situation. Just take a time out for a minute to behold the wondrous works of God. And I just want to say to you this morning, if you are if you are just entrenched and you're just bogged down, right, knee-deep in circumstances or your own situations, just take a moment, a time out, and behold. Just behold God. Behold his creation. You know, if you can't go to Yellowstone, bring it up on your computer. Behold. We're told to behold. Makoto Fujimura, who's the founder of the international arts movement, says... 
The church has exiled beauty from its conversations. We need to rediscover the beautiful in order to recover ourselves, our humanity. And Jesus seemed to indicate that beauty itself was the door into the gospel. You remember the story when Mary of Bethany barged into a place where Jesus was and took this ointment that she had saved up for her entire life and pours it out. And what is the accusation against her? What a useless act. This could have been used for something else. Again, it's this idea of usefulness and utilitarianism. And Jesus says, leave her alone. What she's doing is beautiful. It was wasteful. It wasn't practical. But to God, it was beautiful. And I fear that that's what God deeply longs from each one of us, is us pouring our hearts out to him in beautiful worship. Right? Like it didn't make any sense what she was doing with the ointment, for sure. And if we're all using our heads like we do, it'll probably prevent us from doing the things that are truly beautiful to God. Because they're not practical. Worship isn't always practical. There was nothing practical. I've said this in the past, that Jesus was anything but practical. He just, that just wasn't, that wasn't what Jesus is after. The world has plenty of pragmatism, right? That's not, that's not, that's not Jesus of Scripture. He didn't care about that. He said, leave her alone. This is beautiful. What she has done to me is beautiful. Do you long for beauty this morning? I do. I don't know about you. I do. I I want the Lord to reignite a sense of wonder and beauty about him, about the world, and about my life. Jesus is indicating so much how important beauty is. And to see the beauty and majesty of his character and his works. Mary's rebuke for being wasteful, but Jesus praises her for doing something that is beautiful. What she did was extravagant. And extravagant worship is really the response of God's own extravagant love. See? Like what God did wasn't practical in the creation of all things, certainly in sending his son to die for us, that wasn't very practical, right? We think, oh, well, God is, you know, infinite, and I mean, it's, not, it's just a blip on the radar, it's no big deal to him, no, right? If, if, if Abraham offering Isaac is any indication to us of how hard it is for a, son, a father to offer a son, it was heart-wrenchingly difficult for God to offer his own very son. How much of our own worship is limited by being practical? Now think about it for a moment. I'm not even talking about what we do here on Sunday morning. How much of your own lives and the worship in your own lives and hearts is limited by pragmatism? Or concepts of usefulness and utility, right? It is kind of wasteful to spend 30 minutes on the morning, in the morning on your knees praying. Right? There's a lot to do in the morning. It does feel wasteful. But there's a kind of extravagance to it that is appropriately the right reaction to God's extravagant love. Right? I mean, there are some things that are wasteful as far as the world's conception of utility is concerned. But God wants it. Thirdly, I want us to see, in worship, we recognize God's lavish love towards us. This is what really God is after. 
In verses 3 and 5, the psalmist says, When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. The psalmist starts off with his sins and then moves to the glory and wonder of the world as a sign that God has not abandoned the world. Right? The story from the first chapters of Genesis is that Adam and Eve completely blew it. And the human race continues perpetually in a state of sin. And the psalmist says, that's true, but Lord, you have not abandoned us. You atone for our transgressions, and by awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. Maribel and I often, we lived about an hour from the coast in California, and me and Maribel and the kids um, not all the time, but sometimes after church, we would just say, let's go to the beach. It was, I mean, the beach was free, right? It was a cheap thing to do. And we would take the freeway, and we'd get off on um, Lost Virginia's Canyon, and then it would take us to Malibu Canyon, which winds through the Santa Monica Mountains. And it's a beautiful drive, but there's a point when you come up over a ridge, and the last line of mountains, the ocean becomes visible. It's glorious. And the air immediately turns salty and fresh. And the vision of seeing that, the, the ocean, which stretched, went on forever, the vision of that alone was resetting, wasn't it? It was just like a reset. Boop. Reset. Whew, okay. We, we, we can start our week over again. I mean, we didn't just see it and turn around. We drove and parked and got out and sat at the beach for a while. But it was just glorious. It was just something that reset us. Worship resets our hearts, the right kind of worship. Now, I don't say the right kind of worship to say, well, God accepts your worship and not yours. What I'm saying is the kind of worship that is sincere and heartfelt, that invites in this sense of real wonder. It resets us because we're able to recognize in that kind of worship God's lavish love for us. By awesome deeds, you answer us with your righteousness. The weight of God's lavish love, it's like crushing in a powerful way. It's just, it's powerful. because it, it, it turns our pride into humility. And it turns our selfishness into gratitude. And real worship ought to focus you away from yourself. Hopefully this morning, in the songs and the liturgy we've done, you weren't thinking about taking out the trash. Hopefully. Sometimes you can't stop it. Hopefully right now you're not thinking about the trip to Costco after church. Right? Like all those chores and all that drama, it's, it'll be there for you when you leave. But when you come into worship, hopefully you are able to focus and shift the focus away from yourself for a little bit and focus on God's lavish love for us. This is what Dwight had. He had this heart of gratitude. Right? True worship that focuses on God's lavish love, it gives you a heart of gratitude. It fills your heart with thankfulness. Is there, is there anything right now, this moment, that has happened the last couple of weeks that you feel thankful for? Like, you're like, no, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, th there was a song I heard when I was a kid, Count Your Blessings, Name Them One by One. Count Your Blessings, See What the Lord Has Done. Does anybody know this song? Right. Count your blessings, name them one by one. 
the whole idea is that sometimes you have to remind yourself of how good God has been. Sometimes a, gra- a heart of gratitude and thankfulness can only emerge when you have recounted the ways that God has been good to you. And when you are bogged down in your own daily life, especially in the daily grind of family and work or school or bills or whatever the case may be, you lose that. And if you lose it too long, you'll become cynical. If you lose it too long, you'll become jaded. Dwight's view wasn't some sentimental view of God. Not that that's wrong per se. It's not wrong being sentimental about God, but it wasn't just being sappy for sappiness' sake. I resist that, and that's like a deficiency in me. Right? I just defit, I like resist sappiness. And sometimes like I need that, you know? Sometimes I need to cry at a commercial or, or, or a rom-com or something, you know? Viewing God with this heart of gratitude is always grounded in forgiveness, I think. I think it's grounded in God's glorious acts. It's not just nature, right? Because like a mountain can't forgive you. A mountain can't atone for your sins. But the mountains point to the God who did, right? Like God atoned for our sins. And this ultimately is the beauty. This is how the psalmist wraps up the whole chapter is he recognizes his sins, looks to nature, the glorious things to behold, which point to a holy God who has atoned for sins, and he takes refuge and gratitude in that. He says, but you have atoned for our sins. I've seen the bounty of the crops and the, the waters and the rivers overflowing, right? Watering the lush crops in the fields. I've seen how you provide and it makes me think of how you've atoned for our sins. And like Mary, Dwight's little acts of worship at every detail was in turn beautiful to God. Those little things I resented about Dwight, God was probably just beaming. He was just going, yeah, he gets it. You know, and I'm, here was I, I was the pastor you know, of the church Dwight attended, and I was just like, you know, come on, you know. Quit being silly. And, you know, now I totally get it. I talked to him the other day. I called him as I was writing, as I was working through this sermon. We haven't talked in years. I just went, how's it going? He's the same guy. You know, he's just the same guy. He is exactly, and it refreshed me. You know, spring is here in a few weeks, and the flowers will bloom. The grass will be green. And we are about to behold this yearly cycle of beauty in nature. And it's completely fitting because it coincides with Easter. We're going to celebrate God's supreme act of giving life to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. As we, and as you behold, over the next few weeks, the flowers blossom, the grass start to turn green again, the, 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 the trees bud and bloom I want you to just behold. Take some time, walk down the street in your neighborhood and just stare up at the tree. Just stare up at the clouds. The sun will be shining. There'll be warmer, you know, sun rays on your face. The other day, it was like the first true sunny day. I think it was like in like the high 50s. I spent the whole day outside and it was just glorious. And it was something to behold. And this leads us to number four and final 
Recognizing Jesus' gratuitous act of sacrifice transforms us. Romans 5.8 says that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And here is this supreme, supremely beautiful act from God himself, which was wasteful. It was wasteful in that it was the sacrifice of God's own son. It was gratuitous. Maybe I should use it that way. Gratuitous. He didn't have to do it. You know, a gratuity is something you give for free, right? You give out, you give more than should be given, or you don't have to give it, right? The sacrifice of God's own son was something he did not have to do, but did for us. And I hope as we approach this Easter season and approach Good Friday, your hearts will be lifted up in a profound sense of beauty and wonder. Let's pray. Father, now we thank you for your awesome wonder, the splendor of your mysterious character, your glorious and majestic acts and deeds in history, and the work of your hands in creation, all which point to this defining moment in history when you paid the price for our sins through your son Jesus, this act of gratuity that you gave that you didn't have to. We call that grace. We recognize your grace, O God, and we have received your grace freely and thankfully. Lift our hearts up, O God, in the coming weeks with a sense of gratitude and thankfulness on account of your son Jesus. Amen.